I'm intending to give a, I hope it's going to be short, tell me if it's not short, um, presentation, which really sort of whistles through one or two examples of policy engagement that I've done myself and try to end with a few, not, obviously not an exhaustive list, but a discussion of several points which I've learned along the way, which I think it might be helpful to pass on. Um, I mean, in terms of engagement with animal health policy, this is something which I've basically done my entire academic career, initially accidentally, and then really as a, a sort of deliberate strategy. Um, and it all started back in 2001, when, if you remember the epidemic of foot and mouth disease we had in 2001, um, this was the invasion of a disease which hadn't been known in Britain for 35 years. Um, it spread rapidly through the country. Um, it was completely out of control. And the government's response was to bring out of the closet a, a very old policy, which was just kill everything in sight, which didn't actually do very much. And so as the weeks went by, the death toll was mounting. People were getting more and more upset at seeing these dead cows, pyres, silent countryside. Uh, tourism was suffering. Uh, there were huge voices raised. Why aren't you vaccinating against this? What could be done? Um, and the, the big issue, how can we bring this, this epidemic under control? Well, I, at that point, was 18 months into a PhD on the history of foot and mouth disease, <laughs> which was um, intended to be history. You know, I wasn't intending to be speaking to a present-day context when I began that study. But because I was writing about a disease that nobody had heard of for 35 years, nobody else knew anything about it, and I'd been spending 18 months wading through the archives. And from what I could see was that this policy the government was using was a very old policy. Uh, it's a policy which had been repeatedly problematic. And it was a policy that had roots in a very specific time and place. And this is important because a standard line that came out of government was, well, it's a terribly contagious disease, we can't do anything else. And I could say, well, yes, you used to do something else, and this is why you started doing this policy. And it wasn't that the pathogens demanded it, it was that people demanded it. And if we look at the culture and the economic and the political reasons that those people demanded it, are any of those reasons relevant anymore? And the other thing I dug out of the archives was, it was a very deep-seated institutional bias against vaccination. So what this history did was really sort of challenge the government's claim to be acting on the basis of evidence, scientific evidence, and that was the only type of evidence that counted. Um, I did this mainly through media channels. Um, I, I started off writing a piece for The Guardian which just completely exploded into a whole host of, of media invitations. And I was taken up by various groups that were engaged in challenging the government's policy legally uh, and in other ways. If you do ask whether any of this did any difference, made any difference, um, I think it contributed to a more general wave of criticism against agricultural policy, which had begun with BSE and was accelerating through foot and mouth and did lead to changes. But it was very difficult to say what my specific contribution to those changes were. I mean, there was no impact agenda then. I didn't have to demonstrate it. I think I would still have found it very difficult to demonstrate it. But 
my stuff was out there and being talked about and actively debated and all over the web, so I certainly engaged. But did I impact? Not on policy. Um, the second example is rather more recent. Um, and this, again, grew out of a policy problem. 2009. A new disease had appeared in Europe, um, largely because the little insect that spread it was changing its habitats. It had decimated uh, Holland and France, and it had begun to appear in Britain. This blue tongue virus affecting sheep and cows. And the government had been very concerned about this. It had rushed through licensing of a new vaccine, and it was deliberately trying to advertise this vaccine to farms and to facilitate their uptake. But it was not prepared to pay. It simply felt that by educating farmers that this was in their best interests, they would naturally act. But they weren't. They weren't doing. So, big question. Why aren't farmers vaccinating? Well, obviously, this is a new disease. There can't be historical precedent for this disease. But there was... Don't hesitate. If you look at these two advertising campaigns, this is 2009. This is 1966. They didn't realise they'd even got the same slogan. It's an entirely different disease, foul pest, but it was being handled in very much the same way. Previously, this had been handled by slaughter up to the 1960s. This was getting very expensive. In 1963, the government changed its policy and said, voluntary vaccination at the farmer's expense. But we will advertise, we will facilitate, we will monitor vaccine uptake, um, and the same thing, people were not doing it. So through looking back at this epidemic and trying to dig out of the archives why farmers then were rejecting vaccination, I could begin to pull out a whole spectrum of factors which certainly merited consideration in the present blue-tongue policy context. And this little piece of history, I actually did, this is policy-driven history. I was asked to do this by the Deputy Chief Veterinary Officer of DEFRA, because at that time I had, largely because I was being funded through um, a very special research programme, which um, has actually finished now, I was being funded to do a wider piece of research, and as part of that programme I was given a two-week work shadow. So I got to follow the Deputy Chief Veterinary Officer around his policy meetings for a couple of weeks, uh, just simply to see what his job involved, who he talked to, and we had some private conversations. I found it really, really interesting experience. I mean, the idea was to learn about the context in which my research could potentially make a difference. But I think he learned too. So we both had to fill in reports afterwards, and he said he really enjoyed having a, a challenge from outside, a different perspective on things. And he was really pleased with the, the, the report that I did on foul pests, and said, you know, I want my team to see this, I want it to be published, I think this is a really interesting perspective, we need to think more about these things. My third example is actually what my wider research programme was all about. And this was a programme of research on the history of veterinary preventive medicine. So going back to the Second World War, what attempts had been made on the farm to prevent rather than to treat livestock disease? But actually, I had 
very, right from the very outset, I had framed this piece of research of something which would not just enhance history, but would also speak to policy. Because at that time, 2007, DEFRA had a policy called Farm Health Planning. And this was an attempt to reorient veterinary practice around herd level preventive medicine. It said, the past has all been about fire brigade treatment of individual sick cows. The future is about herd level health management. And of course, this will work because everybody knows that prevention is better than cure, right? I mean, who could possibly dispute that fact? Um, there was a report that came out in 2009, again, a DEFRA-sponsored report, to think about the future of farm animal veterinary medicine. And this report repeated the notion that disease prevention is better than cure, the future lies in farm health planning. And DEFRA was working in partnership with the veterinary profession and with farmers groups to try and get this stuff off the ground. Again, it wasn't prepared to pay for it, it wanted to facilitate it. But there was a bit of a problem because, again, people weren't listening. They weren't doing the right thing. So why not? Well, from the history that I'd been doing, first of all, I could show that this was not the first time that there had been efforts involving the state and the veterinary profession to reorient farm animal health in this way. But what these past efforts revealed was not that prevention was always better than cure, but that sometimes it might be and sometimes it might not. And that very specific set of circumstances recurred over time to make prevention make sense and equally to ensure that it didn't make sense. And so by pulling out those examples, um, I could show I could try and sort of shed light on why farm health planning was not actually being taken up in, in the appropriate ways. And I think in this particular case, my engagement was primarily with stakeholders, primarily veterinary stakeholders. Because the interesting thing about government now working more in partnership is that there's a lot more stakeholders involved at the policy table. They're being brought in as advisors and all sorts of advisory committees. And so by targeting these people, they could then take what they had learned to that negotiating table. Um, and so basically I was writing for veterinary press, um, I was talking informally with vets, I was giving formal addresses to vets. Um, and did that make an impact? Um, I certainly see myself cited in veterinary publications. Um, I know that certain big figures in the veterinary profession talk about what I found, in, admittedly in a very superficial, introductory, sort of, isn't this interesting type of way, perhaps rather than the, um, should we just abandon the whole concept of prevention anyway, they, you know, they haven't taken it that far. Um, but I think it's, it is being talked about. So what are the general things that I personally have, have pulled out from these and other experiences. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that say, oh, you know, this is selling out. We shouldn't just be jumping to present day agendas. We're historians, we do history, and that's the important thing. But I don't think these agendas are contradictory. I think it is possible by planning your research to contribute equally to advancing history and to engaging with what's happening now. 
But that does require you to be thinking about this all the time, rather than saying, oh, right, I finished my research, now, who's going to listen to it? I think it's a case of thinking, well, actually, what might my research questions be? Why are those interesting for history? And who might be interested in what I find now? Which audiences, which problems can I be addressing at the same time? So um, I, I do think it's a sort of mindset of a continual, you know, continual sort of flipping between past, present um, policy and history um, and, and how research can, can best, best address these dual agendas. But I think the other really important thing, and, and the more time goes on, the more I realise how important this is, is simply knowing people. Because, again, if you think, you know, I've got a piece of research, I mean, it's great we have history and policy now. We didn't when I was doing my foot and mouth stuff. You know, I was there saying, I'd quite like to write an article for the media, but where do I go? I mean, I had no idea. But over years now of mingling and mixing and talking to people and never knowing who else is talking to whom and, and how your name might get around, I just think personal connections are so important. Um, I mean, I think Virginia Berridge found this when she went out and looked at health policy, that the policymakers who used history were often the ones who knew a historian rather than the ones who had just read a book or looked in the literature. So, um, yeah, basically put yourself about and put yourself about with not necessarily obvious audiences. I mean, I find mixing with um, scientists and social scientists who might be working on contemporary aspects of your historical subject is as good a way as any to get the message out. Because often, if, if somebody's looking for an input from academia, they're not going to go to a historian, they might go to a scientist. That scientist might say, oh, there's an interesting historian over there. So the sort of networks start to, start to stack up. And in that sense, it is a long-term game. You know, if, if you're gradually... I, I feel now, after about 15 years, I'm embedded. So that now people will come to me, rather than me necessarily going, well, who do I talk to now? What do I do next? Um, who, how should I go with this? It's definitely... It comes together, but it's a very... It's a bit hit and miss. You never know where the payoff's going to come. So as well as the very targeted strategic stuff that you're being talked about through this course, I do think the, you know, the informal networking is, is really useful. Um, in terms of if you want your history to speak to policy, well, obviously you have to know what's happening. And my five-year subscription to Farmers Weekly has just ended. <laughs> um, I don't think I'll be renewing it right now, but it was certainly really, really useful. When I went into DEFRA and I knew what they were talking about in their policy meeting, so I read it in Farmers Weekly, my street cred went up. And people saying, what's a historian doing here? Oh, yeah, I know all about Blue Tongue. Yeah, yeah, so that, that, that's important. Uh, I've still got my weekly subscription to Veterinary Record, though, and that's not going anywhere. Uh, um, as I say, problem-oriented stuff. Each of the things I've done has been about a specific problem. It hasn't been, oh, here's some context. Oh, look, we've here, been here before. It's been very much, how can history specifically address this specific policy problem right now? Um, and the final point, impact. <laughs> Again, this, this for me is fairly new. I recently wrote an impact statement for King's History, and I was so glad I'd kept the emails in the last six or seven years, because that was often 
where I would find evidence of impact. Now, now you go out, you, you collect it, you look for it, you know you've got to keep it, you know you've got to measure it. Um, but, as I say, I've, I've often you know, had to dig through emails for someone to go, oh, that was, I really took that away from your, your talk, thank you very much. I'm like, okay, now I have some evidence. Um, but yes, don't, don't underestimate where that evidence might be found. Keep everything, never delete your emails. Okay, thank you. Great, thank you very much.